Bible this evening, uh, we would turn your attention to Genesis chapter 3. You can find that on page 3 in your pew Bible. And after we read from the Word of God, we'll then also read from the Belgic Confession, article 14, and you can find that in your Forms and Prayers book in the pew rack there on page 166. We read first then from the inspired Word of God as we have it in Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, You shall not eat of every tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, Where are you? So he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded you that you should not eat? Then the man said, The woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree, and I ate. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. Then to Adam he said, Because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Both thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you shall return." And Adam called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground from which he was taken. So he drove out the man, and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden, and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. Thus far our reading from the Word of God. 
Uh, we then turn to Article 14, which is entitled The Creation and Fall of Man. And it states there, we believe that God created man from the dust of the earth and made and formed him in his image and likeness, good, just, and holy, able by his own will to conform in all things to the will of God. But when he was in honor, he did not understand it and did not recognize his excellence. But he subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse, lending his ear to the word of the devil. For he transgressed the commandment of life which he had received. And by his sin, he separated himself from God, who was his true life, having corrupted his entire nature. So he made himself guilty and subject to physical and spiritual death, having become wicked, perverse, and corrupt in all his ways. He lost all his excellent gifts, which he had received from God, and he retained none of them, except for small traces, which are enough to make him inexcusable. Moreover, all the light in us is turned to darkness, as the Scripture teaches us. The light shone in the darkness, and the darkness did not receive it. Here John calls men darkness. Therefore, we reject everything taught to the contrary concerning man's free will, since man is nothing but the slave of sin and cannot do a thing unless it is given him from heaven. For who can boast of being able to do anything good by himself, since Christ says, No one can come to me unless my Father who sent me draws him. Who can glory in his own will when he understands that the mind of the flesh is enmity against God? Who can speak of his own knowledge in view of the fact that the natural man does not understand the things of the Spirit of God. In short, who can produce a single thought since he knows that we are not able to think a thing about ourselves by ourselves, but that our ability is from God. And therefore, what the Apostle says ought rightly to stand fixed and firm. God works within us both to will and to do according to His good pleasure. For there is no understanding nor will conforming to God's understanding and will apart from Christ's work, as He teaches us when He says, without Me, you can do nothing. A congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, much material both in the reading of Scripture and also in the reading of that article within our Belgic Confession. Uh, it's not our intention this evening to exhaustively deal with all of that material, but rather to look in a focused but also a summary manner upon the basic teaching, the basic truth concerning what is known as the fall of humanity. And I want to, by way of introduction, put that in our view with this statement, this quote, man as man is not nearly what he once was. Now, we could update it perhaps if that's a more tolerable. Humanity as humanity is not nearly what it once was. Uh, the depths of our ruin, the depths of our fall need to be considered. Not just that we will have, so to speak, low esteem and negative views about ourselves, but rather that we might have a true biblical appreciation for that which we were, but also that which we have become, in order that we might see our need ultimately of a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, I want to try by way of an analogy to put this in front of ourselves in a concrete, everyday sort of way. By using this analogy, it's certainly not my intention to pretend that this analogy works perfectly, nor is it my intention to, so to speak, speak irrelevantly about these topics. But I have the occasion within this past week 
uh, to drive down Highway 163 past a place of business, I assume that's what you'd call it, known as Doug's Four-Wheelers, if I saw the sign and if I read the sign correctly. And maybe some of you are familiar uh, with Doug's Four-Wheelers. There is a massive collection uh, of antique automobiles, more specifically uh, of trucks of various ages. I I would guess just driving by from the 50s, the 60s, the 70s, and I did notice uh, a few models from the 80s. Uh, You might simply say these vehicles have seen better days. Uh, Now, as we go past, we might reminisce and think, oh, yes, I remember my 1984 Chevy Silverado or my 1972 Ford. And we maybe even see one there at Doug's four-wheelers. And we think, that's what I used to drive. But now imagine that same vehicle as it came off the assembly line. The paint was pristine. Maybe it was even a two-tone color. Uh, All of the equipment worked perfectly. It went down the road straight and true. It could haul the appropriate payload. You might say it was a a thing of beauty. The tires were new. Uh, You could even smell the newness when you opened up the cab and as you sat on the vinyl seat and as you gripped uh, the steering wheel that by today's standards would seem unusually large. But now if you go to Doug's four-wheelers and look at that truck as it sits there, you see decay. You see rust. Uh, The engine no longer turns over. And if it does turn over, it no longer runs smooth. And so when you compare the two, uh, you see the effect uh, of the ages uh, upon these vehicles. Those trucks are not as they once were. So it is, and even more so, with humanity. Now, if you go to Doug's four-wheelers, and if you pick out one of these trucks, now imagine you want to restore it. You understand that you need to do a lot of work. You can't just put the, the truck in your garage and wish it to restoration. And you can't say to the truck, well, paint yourself and, and polish off uh, the imperfections and, and fix the rust. No, somebody must come and must invest an incredible amount of hours and energy to restore that rusted truck back to its original pristine condition. And so perhaps the analogy works. Uh, perhaps it doesn't work. If it does work, uh, we appreciate the usefulness of it. If it doesn't work, we apologize for the lack of usefulness of it. But tonight, we want to consider this basic truth, our belief concerning the fall of humanity. We want to do so, first of all, by looking at the creation of humanity. The creation of humanity. We'll be brief on this point, but we're also going to be pointed on this point, especially, again, uh, to any young people who are in our midst or who will hear these words, because this topic is so debated and yet so vital and essential. So first of all, we'll consider the creation of humanity, and then secondly, the sin of humanity, and then thirdly, the corruption of humanity. So our belief concerning the fall of humanity, the creation, the sin, and then the corruption of humanity. First of all, then, the creation of humanity, and two things that we want to say briefly tonight include that the creation of humanity is an historical event, and that humanity is the image-bearer of God. 
So first of all, then, the creation of humanity as an historical event according to the biblical revelation. And so we read again, as we read several weeks ago from Genesis chapter 3, and what we would simply underscore for the children and for the young people and those who may be making their way in their college and vocational life, beginning to, uh, so to speak, live life on their own. We know what we know about the origins of humanity primarily from the Word of God. It's a simple statement, but it is absolutely profound in its implications. We know what we know about the origin of humanity based upon the revelation that we receive from the Word of God. Anything that contradicts that which is recorded in the Word of God, and especially in the opening chapters of the Word of God, anything that contradicts that ought to be and indeed must be rejected. God reveals to us Not only the fact that He created in some general terms, but also something of the details with His creation. And this is all based upon uh, a proper, historical, literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 3. And we would just present to you two proofs that that is how we are to interpret Genesis chapter 3. What do I mean by a historical, literal interpretation? That when we read Genesis 3, these events actually took place in the way in which they are described. This is not myth. This is not just simply some type of uh, allegorical doctrine or statement, but rather this is a historical narrative describing events that actually took place of an interaction, yes, between Eve and a serpent, more specifically Satan as he took the form of a serpent. Uh, It records an actual historical event of the eating of a forbidden fruit and of the consequences uh, of shame that came upon that first human being, Adam and his wife Eve. The first proof for a literal literal interpretation of Genesis chapter 3 is that the rest of Scripture takes Genesis 3 as literal. And you can read from passages in Nehemiah. You can read from passages in the Psalms. You can read about uh, other events that are recorded uh, by the authorship of Moses from front to back. In the Scriptures, you will find the Scriptures affirming these events. You can go, for example, and just one example taken from the Epistle of Romans 5, verse 12, and you can read there how the Apostle Paul echoes Genesis 3, and he says, by one man sin entered into the world. And so if you were to ask yourself, or maybe more precisely, if you were to ask Paul, Paul, what is your view of Genesis chapter 3? Paul would say, I believe that by one man sin entered into the world. Perhaps, I say perhaps because that ought to be sufficient proof in and of itself, but perhaps more proof is found in our Lord Jesus Christ Himself. And I know there are many experts who have much more knowledge than I, much more education than I, But I've often thought of it this way. I am completely satisfied and I am completely content and indeed I am profoundly grateful if my view of Genesis 3 and if my view of the origin of humanity is that which matches Jesus Christ. Would you not agree that Jesus Christ's view of the origin of humanity is the best? Well, what does Jesus Christ Himself say in Matthew 19, verse 4? Jesus answered and said to them, Have you not read that He who made them at the beginning made them male and female? Now where does Jesus Christ get that phrase, male and female? God created man in His own image. Male and female, He created them. 
And I would submit to you, especially to the young people of this congregation and others who may hear all that we have by way of higher criticism, all that we have by way of the theories of macroevolution, all that we have flowing out of Darwinism and everything else from a scientific rationale that is contrary to the Word of God is why we find ourselves in the backwaters, you might say, of a sexual revolution that took place in the Western world in the 1960s. And now we find ourselves in the midst of the chaos which is brought about by these ideas of sexual perversion. Why do we find ourselves in a culture that is convinced that there is a spectrum of genders? Because we find ourselves in a culture that by and large has rejected the clear testimony of the Word of God. That in the beginning God created this way. Male and female, He created them. And God created human beings as a unity, but within that unity with, with two elements. And so we read in the opening chapters of Genesis uh, that God, and we understand that there is an anthropomorphic language, God by His hands, now God of course is Spirit, that's why we say there's an anthropomorphic element to the language ascribing human parts to God, but God forms man, that is humanity, human beings, with the first person being Adam. God forms Adam from out of the dust of the ground as relates to his body. And so theologians call this formation, formation of our material element, that is our bodies. And that's why at a Christian funeral, uh, those words are often recited, from dust we have come and to dust we return, as it applies to our body during this intermediate state. But in addition to a body, God also imparted a soul, uh, that spiritual entity of a human person, that invisible but nevertheless real and true spiritual component uh, that distinguishes us from the rest of the animal kingdom. And here also you find evidence of the mass confusion in our day and in our age. Because the life of many animal species is more valuable to numbers of the human race than humanity itself. And so there are greater fines if you take the life of an endangered species than if you take the life of an unborn child. How do we find ourselves in the midst of such chaos and confusion by and large? Because we do not understand or we will not understand as a society that life begins at the moment of conception when body and soul is united together underneath the creative work of God. And I say to you again, congregation, these are basic teachings. These are not the dark, mysterious passages of Scripture uh, that are difficult to understand. These are the clear things. These are the main things. These are the plain things. So most of society has rejected them. We dare not go along with society's rejection of these basic principal truths. When we understand humanity, when we understand who we are, it must begin with understanding where we came from. And perhaps this is also why we are so confused as far as humanity's purpose. Why there are so many young people who are distressed, uh, who have a sense of a, a lack of self-identity. We are not just simply hyper-evolved animals. We are image bearers of God. So having a body, but also having a soul, God originally created us, human beings, 
uh, with His image. Both male and female, let us never be mistaken. Although there are distinct roles, we understand that, for a husband and for a wife, men and women are equal in the sight of God as image bearers of God. Adam was no more an image bearer than Eve was. Yes, Adam was created first, and Eve from Adam. But they are equal, and they continue to be equal as image bearers of God. What does that mean to be an image bearer of God? And here again, other opportunities ought to allow our more fuller development of these things. But humanity was and is image bearers of God in this sense that humanity has a rational mind. Able to think rational thoughts. Now, certainly animals have brain matter, but they are not able to rationally think. In addition, humanity has emotions or affections. Human beings are able to laugh, and human beings are able to cry. Human beings are able to rejoice, and human beings are able to have a righteous indignation. Not only a rational mind and emotional affections, but also humanity has a volitional will. That is, the, the desires, the wants, that make up the essence of who we are. Now, prior to the fall, as Adam and Eve, as they stood in their pristine condition, in addition to this broad image, they also had the image of God in what theologians often call a narrower sense, Adam and Eve, in their rational mind, they possessed a true knowledge. Now, they did not know everything God knew, but everything Adam knew, he knew truly, or he knew rightly. His knowledge was not exhaustive, but his knowledge was perfect as far as its quality. He had not succumbed yet to the lie. And in his emotions, he loved that which God loved. And he hated that which God hated. And in his will, his will was matched perfectly to the will of God so that he wanted what God wanted. And he did what God wanted him to do. And this was the glory of humanity. That at the pinnacle of the created realm, there was this human race. Male and female. Two distinct genders. Endowed, yes, with a body but within that body also a soul with a mind that had true knowledge, a will that had a proper uh, desire and affections that were motivated to love that which God loved. And in this way to reflect God, all so that this human being might live in fellowship with God. Let us never forget that that is the purpose for man's existence, male and female. And this we see expressed in the garden prior to the fall. When God would come and would walk with Adam and would talk with Adam, would converse with Adam and with Eve and would share in that covenantal fellowship that was the apex of the existence of Adam and of Eve. And so that is the way the human race was created. Now I submit to you as we transition into our second point, you will not find that in any science textbook. You will not find that in the leading universities or the study halls of academia. But you do find that in the Word of God. God said, let us create man in our image. What then happened? Because we all testify, 
also by experience that man as man is not nearly what he once was. And to go back to the opening analogy, I'm told you can buy old owner's manuals of a 1984 Chevy Silverado. And you can look at the picture on the front and then you can go to Doug's four-wheelers and look at the real thing as it sits there and you can say, what happened? What happened to humanity? In one word, sin. Or in another phrase, the fall. And that's our second point. But to understand the sin of humanity, we must understand that this sin takes place in a covenantal context and it results in a miserable separation. Uh, Sin, as we've said before, uh, the word simply means to miss the mark. And if you add the other synonyms within Scripture, such as transgression or iniquity, it is a purposeful, rebellious missing of the mark. It is God saying, you do this or you not do that. And humanity saying, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And this all took place in a covenantal context. Adam and by extension Eve were given this one responsibility to live in fellowship with God. And in their living with fellowship with God, they were given what our Belgic Confession calls the commandment of life. It's called that because if Adam and Eve continued to obey the commandments, the moral guide of God, if they were to continue to walk in the path of obedience, they would experience life, which was fellowship with God. Life is not just indefinite durations of existence. Well, there are indefinite existence in hell, but that's not life. What is life? Jesus tells us, and this is life, that they might know you, that they might have this Covenantal knowledge in this fellowship between Adam and his Creator God. And within this covenantal framework, this commandment of life, there was a condition. And the condition is implied. uh, And the condition is simply, Adam and Eve, if you walk in obedience, you will live. The threat is explicitly stated. If you disobey my probationary command, you will certainly die. A spiritual death that will begin the process of a physical death that will culminate in an eternal death. And so you have this covenantal framework that is set up, but then underneath the sovereignty of God by the instigation of the devil, Adam, as he represents by way of federal or covenantal headship, as he represents humanity, violates that commandment. And so Satan, the deceiver, the liar from the beginning, he comes, and I trust many of you have heard these words expounded, but especially tonight also to the young people. Satan, his tactics and his tricks, they do not change. He has one game plan. And his one game plan is to get people to doubt the Word of God. And he does that very subtly. He comes and he always has an element of truth that he packages his lie in. And he comes to Eve and he says, has God indeed said? And he plants that seed of doubt in the mind of Eve. And then having planted that seed of doubt, he then boldly contradicts the Word of God. You will not die. And then Satan twists it and he makes that which is negative look positive. You will not surely die, but rather you'll really live. And this is exactly what our culture says to all of us. The commandments of God, they're suppressive. 
If you really want life, throw off the shackles of conservative religion. Is this not what we are promised with the sexual revolution? Oh, those norms that guide human sexuality? They all need to be done away with. Now we've evolved into a new age of liberation. It's the lie of Satan. And how is it that denominations that many of you and many of my grandparents grew up in that were strong in these things? I often think of my grandfather lovers. He lived right next to me. And on his shelf right next to his chair would sit the banner. He died 20 years ago approximately. I often think if if he could come back for a Sunday afternoon and pick up an edition of today's banner, he would be absolutely shocked. He wouldn't understand the sexual perversion that is tolerated. How did we get here? Has God indeed said, will not die. You'll become like God. The lie. The fall. Sin. And so Eve, being wise unto herself, takes of the forbidden fruit. And she eats, and her eyes are indeed opened. Along with Adam's. Their eyes are opened to a whole new world. A world of guilt. A world of shame. A world of spiritual embarrassment. Whereas formerly they enjoyed the approachment of their covenantal Lord, now they go and they hide themselves in their shame. And they sow fig leaves of human righteousness to try to cover their shame and their guilt. Because the sin of humanity was a sin of humanity unto a miserable separation. And so as our Belgic Confession says, by this first sin, man subjected himself willingly to sin and consequently to death and the curse. Now perhaps it's overly technical, but sin and misery, yes, they are related, but they are two somewhat different concepts. Sin brings misery. Misery, and this is also how our Heidelberg Catechism has it in that first section, What three things must you know in order to live and die in this comfort? First, how great my sin and misery. Now, oftentimes we we, we shorten it and we say, well, sin, salvation, service. But it's sin and misery. Misery is this alienation. Misery, and, and here perhaps an illustration for the young children or those of us who remember being a young child, being lost in a store. Or, or, or maybe somewhere else. But you're, you're not sure where mom is. And for maybe a four-year-old, that is the most alarming, frightening, distressing experience to not know where mom is. That's something of what Adam and Eve felt as they experienced the shame and the guilt of sin. That's something of what the unbeliever feels being alienated from God. That's something of the explanation for why humanity finds itself living the way it finds itself living. As depression rates soar, as suicide statistics increase, 
As you can almost see on the people's faces, all the lonely people, and they wonder where they came from. And they have this sense of guilt and of shame. But Satan keeps pumping the lie, saying, Hath God really said, You will not die? No, you'll live. And humanity willingly drinks the poison that the serpent offers. But the Gospel comes and it explains that for the child who is lost, who is alienated, who has no peace and who has no joy, there is a way back to the Father. And that way back is through what we consider in our third point, the corruption of humanity. And you might say, well, that's an ironic transition into your third point. You tried to present hope, but then you were going to your third point, the corruption of humanity. But I would present to you tonight that the way to true hope is to understand our corruption. Imagine you go in for an annual physical checkup and you have a terminal disease. What do you want your doctor to tell you? You want them to smile and slap you on the back and say, everything looks good. See you next year. When he knows that there's a corrupt cancer eating your body, it may be difficult, but you want the truth. And the truth is that you and I, by nature, are totally infected with the disease of sinfulness. Now, sinfulness is not the same as sin. Sin, we think of sins of omission and sins of commission. We think of thoughts and of words and of actions where we do that which is forbidden or we don't do that which is commanded. But sinfulness is the depravity of our heart. It is the the lie that we have in our mind. It is the wrong inclinations and the wrong desires that we have within our will. And it is the misplaced affections within our emotions. That's our sinfulness. And see, at times people become very frustrated, even Christians, as we do battle against sin. And we, we cut off sin after sin after sin. But it's just like if you weed a field, and you don't get to the root of the weed. You can cut a weed down today, it'll be right back there the next day. And, and it can be an absolutely frustrating endeavor until you get to the root. And the root of our condition is what we call total depravity which does not mean absolute depravity. It does not mean that we are as sinful as we possibly could be, but it means that every part of our being is infected with sinfulness. Our mind, our will, our affections. In a theological category, we have lost that narrow image of God. We still have the broad image. We still have our mind. But now our mind no longer knows rightly. We still have our will, but our will is inclined to evil. We still have our affections, but we love that which we should hate and we hate that which we should love. Now this perhaps is not the most popular teaching, but is this not the teaching of Ephesians 2, verse 1? And you who were dead, dead in sins and in trespasses. Well, the glory of the Gospel is that when we recognize this truth, then we are pointed to the sovereignty of our God and salvation. Because, of course, you know Ephesians 2, many of you. Maybe you can't quote it verbatim, but you know that that's not the only thing Ephesians 2 verse 1 says. 
And you who were dead in sins and in trespasses, He made alive. A few passages to close out our sermon and to close out our evening. If you're so inclined within the Word of God uh, to turn to Romans chapter 3, you'll notice that there is a description uh, of total inability. The total inability that is a result uh, of total depravity. And so the Apostle Paul, uh, stringing, so to speak, quotations from the Old Testament says in Romans 3, beginning at verse 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Absolutely universal in its scope. The witness to human depravity and therefore total inability. Which in passing is why any type of Arminian gospel of self-help is a cruel, cruel joke. I mean, and here again, we don't mean this in a disrespectful way, but imagine that you were to go to a paraplegic and, and say, why don't you get up and walk? Well, if you saw me doing that, you'd say, he's the cruelest man on the face of the earth perhaps. Why would he go taunt someone who's paralyzed by telling them, why don't you get up and walk? But is that not exactly what the Arminian presentation of the Gospel does? It says to a person who is dead in their sins and in trespasses, why don't you decide to follow Jesus? Well, the answer is because my depraved inclinations don't want to follow Jesus. You see, in that way... Well, it can be so damaging with moralistic sermons. Well, why don't you just quit hating your fellow brother? Because I can't. Try as I might, I can't. Well, why don't you just do better in this area of life and, and, and not do so bad in that area of life? It can become a cruel mockery of a congregation to say such things. I can't. I'm totally depraved. And therefore, I'm totally unable to do any good in and of myself. Well, where is the Gospel then? Here, that God saves such persons. And so you have Adam and Eve covered with the sins of shame and of guilt, trying to sow fig leaves to disguise themselves, running from the presence of God, and God comes. He says, Adam, where are you? Implying also, Eve, where are you? Sinner, where are you? And then God acts, and then God makes a proclamation. And so thankfully, the Apostle Paul doesn't stop writing in Romans 3, verse 10 and following, but he goes on to what is stated there in Romans 3. Verse 23 and following, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace. You see, the person who knows that I can't just stop sinning knows the wonder of free grace. And the fact that my justification doesn't depend upon me stopping sinning, but I am justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by His blood through faith to demonstrate His righteousness. 
We need to be very, very careful, I believe, congregation. I speak most to myself. There's a danger in a Reformed, conservative, confessional congregation. And it's the most ironic danger when you step back and look at it. I've been guilty of a pride in my knowledge of total depravity. Isn't that ironic? We boast in how well we know the doctrine of total depravity. We say, ah, I know it better than he does. He got that point wrong. He didn't quite articulate total inability right. Ah, he's a four and a half point Calvinist. I'm a five point Calvinist. You see what's wrong with that? Not, not, the, not that we want to encourage unbiblical thinking. But if we really know total depravity, the essence of our cry, God be merciful to me, the sinner. The cry should be that of blind Bartimaeus. Son of David, have mercy upon me. And so the litmus test of whether or not we know the doctrine of the fall of humanity, the test of whether or not we know the doctrine of the depravity and the inability, is whether or not we cry out, Lord Jesus, have mercy on me. And I can assure on the authority of the Word of God that everyone who cries out, Lord Jesus, have mercy upon me, will receive that mercy and that grace that justifies freely, apart from the work of the law, because Christ is the propitiation. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our Heavenly Father, we humbly ask that we might have a right understanding of the Scripture's truths in regards to these matters of the origin of the human race and of the fall. But Father, we also pray that it might not just simply be an academic intellectual knowledge. That it might be a powerful experiential knowledge. That Not that we would ever pride ourselves in our understanding of these things, but rather that we would humble ourselves and cry out, Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. And so bless these words to that end, we pray, for Jesus' sake. Amen.